Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, let not your right hand know what your left hand is doing, so that when giving so that, sorry, that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Olivia. Thanks very much for that. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, for those of you who are back from spring break, it's good to be with you. And for those of you who are sitting in your seats uh, still on spring break, fully present elsewhere, uh, hope to see you soon. <laughs> Um, so, we are, uh, we are still in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and today I'm going to talk about uh, self-forgetfulness, which is something that Jesus in the sermon encourages. So, I'll start with a, uh, a little bit from uh, Arthur Miller's famous play, Death of a Salesman. Uh, and the pitiful character in that play named Willie Loman, who is also the father in that play, who trains his sons both explicitly and implicitly uh, that the most important thing in life is to be well-liked. The most important thing in life Willie Loman passes on to his own children is to be well-liked by other people, not to be successful in your business, but to appear that you're successful in your business, not to be kind and virtuous, but to appear that you are kind and virtuous so that you'll be well-liked. And so, by the end of the play, you discover that all of his life, this salesman's theme has not so much been to sell a product as it has been to sell himself. And the play is tragic all the way through. It ends tragically. And I think one of the reasons why this play has become so popular over the decades is that it highlights a universal human problem. It's a problem that we often refer to as shame. Because we know inside that we are not what we are meant to be, uh, we often resort to self-selling strategies. We put on masks, we pretend, we pose. I mean, it started all the way back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were exposed for eating the forbidden fruit. They, they covered themselves with fig leaves. They, they were no longer naked without shame. They were naked with shame, and, and so they covered themselves as a strategy. They hid as a strategy. They withdrew relationally from God and from one another, and they shifted blame toward one another. So, all of these different strategies to uh, put back the broken pieces of a shattered reputation and a shattered sense of self because of this thing called shame. And we've been living out of this, you know, sort of Edenic response to personal shame in the same way ever since. So, I read on, on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, I can't remember who put it out there, but it was, it was genius. It said this, I do not want you to think that I am the person that I really am. I want you to think that I am the person that my dog thinks that I am. 
There's a reason why we call the dog our best friend. It's because in the eyes of the dog, even three minutes after we kick the dog in the teeth, I've never done that, by the way, in case you're wondering, but even if we kick the dog in the teeth, three minutes later, the dog's going to look at us as if we can do no wrong. Jesus' word for this, you know, living in such a way that other people will think about us what our dogs think about us rather than the full, whole, honest truth about us. Jesus' word for this in the Sermon on the Mount is hypocrite. Now, you might remember from a couple of weeks ago, uh, a hypocrite in those days wasn't always a pejorative term. It wasn't always negative. It actually was the word that was most commonly used for a stage actor, a thespian, who was a different person on stage uh, than what they were in their personal and private lives. And so, so what Jesus is saying is, for some of you, scribes and Pharisees especially, but, but really for all of us on some level, at least some of your life, you live it as if you're on a stage, and it's not reflective of your private life. It's not reflective of your true personal life. It's not reflective of what the people who know you the best, who live with you, who work with you, would say about you. And, 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 and so, what he is doing now is he's entering into a discourse where you know, through the example of giving, the example of praying, through the example of fasting, what he's exposing is the human tendency to turn our religion or to turn really just about anything, if we're not religious, into a stage, into an act, uh, the chief driving motive being, as Jesus says, to be seen. Practicing in order to be seen. And what, what, what Jesus does is He offers an alternative to people of faith, to people who live their lives in Christ, which is a phrase that I'll, I'll cover in a few moments in more detail. But what Jesus offers is an alternative, and that alternative is life before the face of God in secret, or as the Puritans used to say, living your life for an audience of one. Another way of putting it is you can stop drawing attention to yourself. Or as Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Be satisfied with the reward that comes to you from your Father in heaven. So, three headings. We're all after a verdict. We can now stop striving for the verdict because the verdict is in. So, we are all after a verdict. And, and that verdict that we are all after is the, is the same verdict that Willie Loman was after. The one that will, will convince us somehow, some way, that we are well-liked, that we're okay, that we're important, that we are special in the eyes of another. We are affirmation chasers. It's in our hard wiring. You know, it starts in childhood. You know, two of the most well-known words, two of the most repeated words in the childhood vernacular are the words, watch me. Watch me swim. Watch me run. Watch me draw. Watch me read. Watch me blow my nose. Watch me go potty. Now, as adults, we may stop saying those words, watch me, but rarely do we stop living them. Our, our watch me posture just takes on a more sophisticated, more nuanced, uh, covert approach. 
Watch me get a promotion. Watch me move into a million-dollar home. Watch me drive this $70,000 car. Watch me take this $10,000 vacation, Instagram users. Watch me fit into a size four. Watch me lose 20 pounds. Watch me preach a sermon. Watch me write a book. Watch me climb the charts. It never stops. And these are all morally neutral things. There's nothing morally wrong with climbing the charts if you're a musician. There's nothing wrong with fitting into a size four. If you have a high metabolism or you exercise, there's nothing wrong morally with living in a $1 million home. There's nothing wrong with saying, watch me swim and run and draw and read and poop. There's nothing wrong with that. These are all morally neutral things until we start practicing them in order to be seen. In order to get our emotional love tank filled with other people's applause and approval. You know, on the one hand, this is a very needy approach to life, to always be fishing for applause and fishing for praise and fishing for compliments. You know, the ego that has to draw attention to itself is the ego that is sick. It's only the ego that's willing to and ready and and naturally forgetting itself on a regular basis and turning its eyes outward instead and turning its attention outward that's actually healthy. It's a lot like a, a body part, right? Before I moved to Nashville, I never talked about my feet. And then I discovered the Percy Warner trails, and my age caught up with me, and all of a sudden I had tendonitis in both of my feet. And tendonitis doesn't go away very quickly, and my wife and kids would especially tell you he talks about his feet all the time. The only time we ever need to draw attention to a body part is when it's sick, when it's inflamed, when it's sore, when it's infected. And the infected ego is the same. We we draw attention to it, and we're constantly expecting others or asking others or working hard for others to draw attention to our ego when it's inflamed, when it's infected. So, there's the needy aspect, but there's also the the glory aspect that we're made in the image of God. And and, and the essence of what it means to be God is to be glorified and praiseworthy. And, And so, there's actually something beautiful and good about enjoying legitimate affirmation and praise. And so, so we have to discern what's the motive beneath this, right? And, and we have to ask ourselves the hard question, how are we protecting our egos from the critic? And we all have an inner critic, and we all have external critics as well. The inner critic is that, that thing that I referred to a minute ago called shame. You know, the inner critic is why People like me need to have a dog because we we need at least one being in our lives that never criticizes us, right? Our shame is the negative verdicts that we carry around with ourselves about ourselves. You get that text message from, from a good friend and it says, can we talk? And where does your interior go the moment you get that text when you have no context for it? Your impulse is to be afraid. Maybe they found me out. What am I being exposed for here? Because we know there are things down there. Like our, our worst critic, we can, we can all look at our worst critic and, 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 and honestly say you don't know the half of it. Because chances are anything you criticize me for, I'm ten times worse than what you say. 
deep down, right? Because we know our own hearts, at least to that level. And so we're afraid when we get the text or the email that says, hey, can we talk? You know, the psychiatrist uh, Carl Menninger once said that if he could convince his patients in psychiatric hospitals that their sins were completely forgiven, according to Menninger, 75% of them would check out of the psychiatric hospital immediately. Now, if you're a mental health professional, I know you're resisting rightly this kind of, you know, sort of categorical statement because there are plenty of reasons other than shame and other than lack of awareness of forgiveness that, 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 that create mental health. But, but, but I think what, what Menninger was doing was speaking hyperbolically in order to make a point. The point being that our shame impulse drives so much of our lives and our decision-making. There's also the critic outside of us. I'll always remember that piece that Rolling Stone did on James Taylor. Did you guys read this? Okay, James Taylor. And one of the, the lines of questioning uh, that the interview, you know, entered into with James Taylor was, you know, Mr. Taylor, how do you deal with insecurity when people criticize your music? And here's what James Taylor said. Here's how I deal with it when people criticize my music. I tell myself I will be fine as long as every once in a while someone like Bob Dylan or Paul McCartney says to me, keep going, kid. And he's telling the story of us as well. We, we, we all run to, to, to bigger voices when the chirping voices remind us of our shame we, we, we look for some larger, bigger voice, some more credible, emotionally credible voice to us that, that, that reverses that negative verdict. It is the human impulse, not unique to James Taylor, not unique to Willie, Willie Loman. So, I don't know if any of you have taken the, uh, the Enneagram. It's sort of the new Myers-Briggs. It's, it's, it's a personality assessment. Uh, there are nine numbers. My number is three. And the three is, is known as the achiever, but, but, but here's what some of the literature says about the three. The healthy three, the healthy three is self-accepting, authentic, everything they seem to be role models who inspire others. But the unhealthy three is this. Though diplomatic and poised, unhealthy threes are overly concerned with their image and what other people think of them. You know, I've shared with you before that, uh, that I, in 19 years of preaching sermons, have never once cut corners on a sermon. Never once. And I've never cut corners on a chapter since I write it, started writing books. I have put everything, complete focus, into every sermon I've ever preached. I can, I can say that with complete honesty. Never been lazy once. And that is sometimes for very good reasons. That, you know, much like 
Eric Liddell saying, when, it, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. I, I can also say, when I, when I preach, when I write, when I communicate to others what God has poured into me through His Word, through His grace, through His truth, I feel the pleasure of God. I love this moment. This is one of my favorite moments every week of my life, is this one right now. And sometimes it's not because of the prospect that you will walk away liking me more than you did when you walked in. Sometimes you may walk away, maybe a prophetic message. I'm probably going to do a series on Jeremiah coming up after this one, and and most of you are going to walk away not liking me as much after many of those messages. But I won't care if I'm in my healthy threeness on the Enneagram. I will not care because I will be preaching the Word of God the easy parts, the hard parts, when it's convenient, when it's not, for its own sake, because I'm made to do that. But then there are other times where I work as hard as I can on a sermon, on a, on a blog post, on a chapter, on some other form of communication from a place of unhealth because I want you and I want the crowds to like me. And, and to this, Jesus says, Don't go there. Stop using the gifts that God has given you to draw attention to yourself. Whether you're a preacher or a songwriter or a mother or a father or a kid seeking the paternal blessing at home, don't plug your emotional umbilical cord so as to fill the infinite space of your human soul with finite goods like human applause. Let's say today the cumulative number of people that I preach to is 2,000 people. Let's say I said something so profound that that all of you stood up and started applauding your very, very loudest. And that that applause just continued and continued and continued until some of you died. And then 10 years later, it's it's more quiet. And then 20 years, because more of you have died, it's, it's even softer. And then 50 years, more of you have died. And then 100 years from now, complete silence. So silent in here, you could hear a pin drop. You know, what Jesus is saying is this, all applause that comes from finite sources has a shelf life, has a shelf life. You know, even a Twinkie has a shelf life. I will be forgotten by this old world and so will you. And, and, and so Jesus is saying, look, there's another way. There's a better way, a more life-giving way, a less dysfunctional way. You can, this is number two, you can stop striving for the verdict now. And, 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 and Jesus' you know, practical, functional strategy to stop striving for the verdict is to practice shyness. To learn the fine art of being shy about yourself and bold about Jesus and affirmational about other people. You know, and he talks about giving and praying and fasting in secret. These are all things for which the scribes and Pharisees sought applause for. And Jesus says, go quiet with it. Go dark with it. Be more generous but less boisterous about it. Henry Nouwen is, is a just a, a wonderful contemporary example of this. He talks about this concept or this phrase he came up with called downward mobility. So, so now, and just for context, he taught at Notre Dame, then he taught at Yale, then he taught at Harvard. And, and so he's in this Ivy League world. 
he's a, a sought-after, world-renowned speaker and writer. And right at the peak of his communication career, he left all of it at, at, at the challenge of a, of a man named Jean Vanier, who, who founded a, a small community for people with mental and other disabilities called L'Arche. And now and went to be the pastor of this small community, leaves the Ivy League acclaim and, and, and applause and, and all the, 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 the you know, human favor that you could, you could fathom for an academic and for a minister to pastor this small community of people, most of which would never develop the skill to even say his name. Here's a statement that he made, an excerpt from something that he wrote about downward mobility. Scripture reveals, says Nowen, that real and total freedom is only found through downward mobility. The divine way is indeed the downward way. Jesus moved from power to powerlessness, from greatness to smallness, from success to failure, from strength to weakness, from glory to ignominy. The whole life of Jesus of Nazareth resisted upward mobility. And when, remember I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, when, when, when James and John's mom came to Jesus and said, look, when, when you're sitting there in your glory, when, when, when you make all things new and, and the eyes of the universe are all on you, will you also put my sons to your right and your left so they can share the spotlight with you? I want my son, I mean, it's the heart of every mother. I want my sons to be great. And then Jesus retorts with this. Do you want your sons to be great? Let me not only tell you what it means to be great, let me show you what it means to be great. What it means to be great is to get on your knees with a basin and a towel and scrub the feet of your own servants. Because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I tell you that those who are the greatest in the kingdom are going to be the ones who serve, and the first are going to end up last, and the last, the downwardly mobile, are going to end up first. People who live their lives in quiet obscurity are going to be served by kings and queens in the new heaven and the new earth. Fewer selfies, more kindness. That's the call. If you're a teenager, if you're an adult, we're in Lent right now, will you go on a fast with me for the remainder of Lent? Will you fast from posting any pictures of yourself or any photos that draw attention to you through name-dropping of who you're in the picture with or who you're taking the picture of. Will you go on that fast with me? And instead, will you use your social media for the sole purpose of lifting up and encouraging other people who are not you? Will you do that with me? You might find at the end of that process, at the end of that fast, that you are happier and more emotionally full, not less, because you've directed your attention away from your wounded, infected ego to the things that you're made for, the glory of God and the love of your neighbor. And that's actually how the infected ego gets well. There's a process here. 
You know, Tim Keller says this, there is nothing that makes us more miserable or less interesting than self-absorption. The opposite of this is also true, that the happiest, fullest, most interesting people are the outward people who are not self-referential. You know, Amy Carmichael, after her death, you know, they were going through her things. You know, Amy Carmichael was this famous missionary who spent a lot of her adult life you know, on bed rest because of illness. Very faithful woman, wrote books and everything else. You can read her stuff, but, but they discovered her, her picture collection. And, and you know, anybody, if you're under the age of 25, a, a picture, it, just imagine a, a like cardboard version of, of your photos on your phone. So there was like a whole, imagine like a whole stack of those. They found a whole stack of those. Each and every picture told a story about some relationship that, that she had. And when they got to the end of, of her picture stack, they realized something. There was not a single image of herself in any of her photos, in the entire collection. Everything, you know, spoke of a life that was poured out for others and that was blissfully forgetful of self. A healthy ego turned outward in a life of love. How do we get there? How do we get to Henry Nouwen's downward mobility? What would make me willing to leave this pulpit, for, to live in a box in Calcutta, or to, to pastor 12 mentally disabled men and women who will never be able to articulate my name, let alone sing my praise? What would give me or you the emotional wealth to do that? I'm not saying we all are called to that. I'm not saying I'm called that. Maybe I will be someday. I'm not saying that I'm called to that either. What I am saying is what are our hearts after if we need this pulpit, if we need that publishing deal, if we need to climb the charts, if we need that song to be adopted by, you know, big-name musician, if we need, 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 what are we after? Except finite goods to fill an infinite soul that can only be filled by the one for whom we are made. Which brings me to the last thought, and that is this, the verdict is in. That's what gave Nowen, that's what gave Amy Carmichael the emotional resources for downward mobility toward greatness. The verdict is in. And it's a verdict that you get to live from rather than toward. It's already been accomplished for you. It, here's the great irony, irony of this in every Sunday morning. We're going to go to this table. And one of the things that the Bible says about this table is that we go to this table to remember. But the chief thing that we remember about Jesus is the way that he forgot himself and made himself forgotten on the cross as the Father forsook him and as the human race forgot him. That's what we remember because he did all of those things so that the Father would be able to remember us because as Pastor Russ has said, God will only punish one penalty with, with one punishment. And Jesus took it. And now that we're united with him, now that we are, as Paul says so many times, the most dominant phrase that Paul uses for Christian identity. Now that we are in Christ, everything that is true of Jesus is now true of us. The verdict is already in. With you, the Father is well 
pleased at the beginning and at the end of your best day and your worst day, of your best season and your worst season. On the day of your promotion and on the day of your dismissal, the verdict is the same. But what's also true of anyone who is in Christ is that if it's true of you, it has become true of Jesus. Because just as you take the benediction, the good word from the Father, He takes the malediction, the bad word that's due to us because of our real shame. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So I love what what my friend and pastor Rankin Wilburn just wrote a great book called Union with Christ. Get it, read it. Rankin, he's from Los Angeles, he says this, God does not love you to the degree that you are like Jesus. God loves you to the degree that you are in Jesus. And all the time, every day, if you are in Jesus, you are 100% in Jesus. The verdict is already in. Jesus gave to the Father and to the world in secret. Isaiah 53 articulates it for us. He became invisible, despised, rejected, nothing in His appearance that would draw praise from us or anyone. The punishment that brought us peace with God was laid upon Jesus. And the Father withheld His applause from the Son to the end that the Son cried out to the Father, my God, the only time Jesus didn't call him Papa, the only time he, call, he addressed him in an impersonal way, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the same reason why we have all forgotten him. So that God's eternal decree could be accomplished, that the emotional love tank of Jesus would be empty in order to make ours full. Because everything Jesus lost, we gained. And after Jesus died, they went through his pictures And guess what they found? Zero selfies. None. All that they found was pictures of stories of those that He's loved, who for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. As Psalm 17 says, those who are the apple of God's eye, or Isaiah 49, who will not forget the child any more than a mother will forget the child at her breast. Or Isaiah 62, as the groom rejoices in his bride, so the Lord your God will rejoice over you. This is higher praise than any crowd than Bob Dylan or Sir Paul himself could give to us. Let's pray. Thanks be to God. Lord, when we know that we have been remembered by You, we are liberated to forget about ourselves. Father, we pray for healthy egos that are not inflamed and, and, and constantly drawing and seeking attention for themselves. We pray for egos that are forgiven and that are liberated, and that are deeply aware, deeply conscious of that freedom and liberation, so that we can then get about the business of being the people that we have been made to be, 
so as to feel your pleasure. The people who spend their lives giving glory and praise to God and giving love to our neighbors, even to our enemies, as Brooke prayed earlier today. Father, teach us what it means to enter into a life with no selfies. Teach us what it means to live in the freedom of that, because our pictures are plastered all over the courts of heaven as you affectionately wait for us to fill those many rooms that you have prepared for all who are in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.